0: This is the right way podcast. podcast.
1: The right way podcast. The
0: right way podcast. The right way podcast. The right way podcast.
1: The right way podcast. podcast. Hi there, this is Matt Riley and uh, I'm talking to Sam Elliott on the right way podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that exemplary introduction there, Matt Riley. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this episode of the Right Way podcast program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott, person whom you just heard giving that exemplary uh, introduction to this particular episode. is none other than today's guest, Matthew Riley, as in Matthew Riley, the New York Times bestselling Australian author. Matthew Riley, who's written a slew of something in the vicinity of 20 books now, uh, all of them hugely uh, well received uh, within forming his own fan base there within the Australian community and abroad of readers and in this particular uh, interview I spoke to Matt about his this is the third time I've spoken to Matt and the third time I've spoken to him about this particular series the Jack West Jr. series uh, this particular conversation was relating to the conclusion to the series the novel The One Impossible Labyrinth, Matthew Riley's the one impossible labyrinth which promises the conclusion to the jack west jr series that ryle himself has been working on for something like 17 years now uh, amassing himself a huge legion of devoted fans uh, myself included among them i'm not shy to say Uh, but yeah this is the third time i've spoken to matt about this particular series. So without further ado, I want everyone to give a big digital round of applause to New York Times bestselling author, Matthew Riley, discussing with me his latest and final novel in the Jack West Jr. series, The One Impossible Labyrinth. Matt Riley, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you going today? This evening in Los Angeles time.
1: Yeah, it's uh, nighttime here in LA. I'm very well, thank you.
0: Look at the. You've got a beautiful setup there, man. I'm saying, you've got to say, you're putting my, uh, my very drab second bedroom to absolute shame here with this memorabilia I'm seeing.
1: There's a diehard building there, Django Fett helmet, Indiana Jones chasing the truck.
0: Over Jango- my shoulder,
1: the, uh, the, the, the idol from Raiders.
0: What's the cap that Django Fett has on his head, the helmet? What's that cap?
1: It's an Interceptor hat. It's uh, the, the crew cap from my movie uh, Interceptor. So it's, it's on top of Django. Nice. I, sh- I should get a Mandalorian helmet. I prefer the Mandalorian to Django, but I got that way back when Attack of the Clones came out. So oh, man. it's all inspiration. You know, if this is a podcast about writing, I surround myself with, you know, if you look the other direction, there are movie posters. There's Empire Strikes Back, Robocop, Avengers Infinity War. Yeah, I surround myself with inspiration here.
0: It's interesting that you surround yourself with inspiration and how it shines through your work. The first thing I wanted to ask you, Matt, because this is the third time I've spoken to you, Mm -hmm. third time about the Jack West Jr. series. And I think that probably the the thing that really stood out to me first that I wanted to cover with you is how does it feel at this point where you're standing, there must be some bittersweet sort of sensations. Yeah, 17 years or so in the making. How do you you feel so far?
1: You know, I... I actually feel really good about it. Mm. I have left nothing. Uh, I've left everything on the field. Mm. It's, it's when I sat down to write four legendary kingdoms, I knew I had to go all the way to the one mm. when I did that. Once mm. I committed to that, I had to do four, three, two, one. Mm. And I had, had a, I had a general idea when I wrote four kingdoms that the final book would take place, you know, in the entirely in this most, diabolical labyrinth, underground labyrinth. And key to the book was exploring Jack's character and also giving every character in the series the fitting end, the end that they deserved. And so, yes, it's bittersweet that it's ending, but I, I humbly think it's, it's ending on the right note. I, there's nothing else I want to do in the Jack West world. I don't want to do a prequel. I don't want to do the zero something, something it's done. It's done. And I'm happy.
0: Mm. So, I mean, you've touched on a few things that I kind of want to speak about there, but first and foremost, let's talk about the, the divvying up of a very finite amount of time with space in terms of page count and ensuring Mm. that everyone, because by now the series has been going on, that so many of you fans have so many strong favorite characters how did you go about ensuring that all of them got uh, the equivalent, I guess, what's what's a, s- a proper speaking role in a movie with such a, you know, short yeah. time? How did you go about doing that? Matt?
1: You know, people, the, the different characters get their moments in the sun. Mm. This this one was, was Jack-centric. This mm. one was always going to be him at the centre and the flashbacks were all going to be about him. Um, you find a rhythm. As you do these books, you do find a rhythm but you also know where the audience's attention wants to be. Mm. And, and I felt at this stage in the story, um, it has to be about Jack. It has to be about him as a human being, him as a character, how he got to be here. Uh, And even as I plotted out the story, let me go in a circuitous way here. The hardest book was the two lost mountains because everybody knew it wasn't going to be the last book in the series. And I couldn't kill off all the big bad guys. You've got Dion, you've got Raster, you've got Sphinx. They all had to survive the two lost mountains. And that book still had to be satisfying. With this book, I even sat down and said, okay, which villain has to face off against which hero? Who does Zoe have to face off against? Who does Lily have? To? So Dion, Lily has to face off against Dion because they've got history. And, and Jack has to face off against, against Rasta or against Sphinx. So these sorts of things, I've set them up in the previous books. They sort of write themselves. And it quickly became apparent that Jack had to be the focus. And if I were a, a fresh reader, I'd be wanting to find out about Jack in this book.
0: Very much. And I mean, like the balancing of the flashbacks and the inclusion of them, because it was used quite sparingly in to Great Effect, I found. But it was a balancing of that and also focusing on mm-hmm. Jack as well. And the thing I liked about it too is that it was kind of the – the most raw and vulnerable that I feel that we've seen Jack throughout the entire series in many respects. And this yes. is like, you know, after the so many times that he's been rattled, but uh, I want you to talk a little bit about that as well, Matt, because it wasn't so much just showing, obviously the mission is always paramount, but uh, this, this human quality as well. And, you know, being flawed at some points, tell me a little bit about that and the motivations behind that too.
1: Well, what's, what's a hero. Mm. And I, I, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed putting Jack in these world-saving, universe-saving scenarios, but over the course of seven books, I enjoyed sending him to a parent-teacher meeting. You know, this guy who saved the world goes to a parent-teacher meeting. Or a couple of books ago, he went to a careers day at Lily's school and, and taught Lily a lesson about one of the other speakers. And and in this one, it's it's going back to Jack's childhood at school when he gets into a fight with these older boys. And what he was doing was he was taking the hits for a smaller boy who he thought would have a big future. And to me, that's the nature of the hero. And the idea was Jack's heroism showed itself early on. And very importantly, his father was disgusted. Mm -hmm. And the readers of the books know from Six Sacred Stones and Five Greatest Warriors that Jack faced off against his father and prevailed. But, He does this wonderful thing and gets no recognition from his father. But his mother Mm -hmm. says, let's go out for ice cream. And maybe that's where I, uh, uh, as I say, you know, I've got my Avengers Infinity War poster on the wall over there. I find the most fun in the giant Marvel movies are these quiet little moments of these heroes doing these really regular people things. And I think my readers see that in Jack. He is a very everyman hero. And I was really sort of, you know, forcing that point home.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned this an everyman hero and obviously these little moments between the, the the sort of huge action set pieces that everyone has come to expect and love from sort of a Matt Riley novel, not just the conclusion of the Jack West Jr. series. But I think another thing as well, and I want you to talk a little bit about it, Max, I don't think we've ever actually touched on it before, is this killing of the darlings, one killing, killing yeah. one of the darlings, yeah? Because in the last particular last two Installments in the series, I found that there has been the killing of darlings, a yes. sort of grand scale that certainly shook it for me when I was like reading this. And I want you to talk a little bit about that because it seems like it's something mm. like that you kind of uh, subscribe to this notion of killing one's darlings, even if that can tremendously sadden readers that obviously love them.
1: Uh, no, I um, if you kill off a character, this is my theory is if you kill off a character, it has to rattle the hero. It has to, if it doesn't have that effect on the hero, it's not worth doing. Mm. And I, I would guide you, you, probably like me, saw the finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer 20 years ago. You know, the hell mouth opens and there's this big battle. And I remember they just killed off in the battle very quickly. Some of these characters you had watched for what? Six years. Mm. And it didn't rattle Buffy. It was just, they're going to kill off some characters in this. There have to be casualties. I will not do that. If, if somebody's going to die, it has to knock Jack for six. Or if it's in a Scarecrow book, it has to knock Scarecrow for six. And that's when I think um, when movies do it best uh, and books do it best. And, you know, I can, um, Lethal Weapon 2, when Mel Gibson's tossed into the water and there's Patsy Kensett already drowned before <clears> him wearing his jacket. Mm-mm. that rattles him to his core. He had found happiness again, and out comes the old Martin Riggs. That is a touchstone for me. And if it doesn't rattle the hero to his core, it has no story benefit.
0: Very much. So it wasn't, it's not like ticking off numbers or doing something yeah. just as a kind of cheap method. It has to have some sort of lasting impact on the, on the hero, such as, such as it does and obviously yeah. exemplified within, um, within the novel itself. Yes. Tell me, tell me Matt, because you've got all this, and this is all this within this sort of narrow narrowed scope or the narrative in which you wanted to tell. But given the sheer colossal size of this series, I always find it astonishing. And I want you to tell me a little bit about because obviously when you first set out to start these novels 17 odd years ago, I don't think that you ever thought that it would eventually end up at this point. And then you've made these stories thereafter. Where then does 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 the formation of your sort of ideas come from in terms of the conclusion of this? particular novel as well as the rest of the series because you've you've expanded to this huge biblical proportion story where does it all come from yeah with
1: the jack west books it started with the fate of the earth at stake then the fate of the galaxy then it was the fate of the universe and that means with my very next book where i'll go in a totally different direction and it'll it'll have different it'll have big stakes but they can't be that you can't keep topping yourself in that regard um, I had a simple goal with the Jack West books, which was to look at the myths that we know about and give them a real world explanation. A bit like the Nolan Batman movies. If you're going to dress up as a bat, how would you do it for real? And you'd use military stuff, military armor, military, you know, bridging vehicles as your Batmobile. That I thought Nolan did that so well. And what I did was I kept a lot of the myths. I was very proud that I kept the Siege of Troy and the Trojan Horse, all the way until the last book. Uh, I'd kept the Sphinx all the way until the Two Lost Mountains. Mm. Um, Even Atlantis and El Dorado, I'd kept them to three secret cities. The Labours of Hercules in the four legendary kingdoms. And and even in in One Impossible Labyrinth, Theseus and the Minotaur, one of my favourite Legends in in Greek mythology, and telling that from the Minotaur's point of view, because Mm. those who've read the books know that in Four Kingdoms I introduced these Neanderthal men who are colloquially called Minotaurs, and to say that history is written by the victors, and and I'm fascinated by myths. How does the myth of the Trojan Horse, bringing a horse into the city of Troy filled with Greek soldiers, how does that survive? 3,200 years. How does a myth of Theseus fighting the Minotaur in a labyrinth survive for 3,000 years? And I love the idea that maybe the Trojan horse was a battering ram ship with its battering ram in the shape of a horse. And it plunged through something else rather than being put into a city. But history is told by the victors. But these stories must have been amazing to last that long. And then, I thought, so how I kept it going, I kept looking at the myths and thinking, well, how do I reinvent those myths for for a modern audience and give them a real-world explanation? Medusa, the sirens, you know, I did it all. It's great. I've run out. That's why I don't have to write any more books. I can't do any more. I'm out. I'm done. <laughs>
0: No, but you always manage to. And, and and this and this thing that fascinates me so much is like how it's sustained throughout without ever feeling like you've rehashed over sort of that, these, mm-hmm. these myths. Not only that, but sort of the balancing and how you've managed to interweave sort of some very, very different kind of ideologies and fables from completely different areas of the world mm-hmm. and then sort of weave them all into what then becomes the storyline as we know it. When you sat down to write this, I wanted to know as well, did you, had you already... Finished off the last and then gone straight, charging long hurtling into the next one. I know you do meticulous planning, but how mm. did you go about that, Matt? Because it always feels like just just the pacing itself is from one to the next straight away without you know any sort of respite. That's what I've always loved, and I think that's what a lot of your readers have loved. Tell me about that sort of process.
1: Yeah, I had the I had to have the basics of the labyrinth figured out mm. when I wrote Two Lost Mountains, because I was always putting in that tattooed scalp of the mummy at the end of two lost mountains so i actually the twist of the the shape of the labyrinth you know being a spiral had to be laid into two lost mountains mm-hmm. so i did have the fundamentals of the labyrinth sort of planned out by that stage the interesting thing was i wasn't supposed to write one impossible labyrinth until this year uh, like everybody COVID upended my life and Mm. I had a whole lot of things in 2020 cancelled and I looked around in like April or May and I said to myself I'm not going anywhere Mm. anytime soon I've got the idea for the story already why don't I see how if I can write it and it turned out I had more than enough time and so that did two lost mountains to one impossible labyrinth was pretty much almost non-stop it was almost from one to the other there was about a yeah about a six-month gap uh, between them uh, and the story was planned out and as that diagram i say to people if you're going to read one impossible labyrinth just have a look at the last three pages of two lost mountains and that's all you need to know then you're ready to rock
0: so that is really different to your normal process though is it like yeah. in terms of the covid setup so that kind of because you normally take i mean I think that I've spoken to you before about it and you don't, you don't write a word until you've got everything kind of very, very much planned out, everything, all the mazes, everything yeah. you know. So it was a bit of a setup. It was a bit of a change and yet it's all, it all kind of came out in the wash and it works wonderfully, I guess.
1: Two Lost Mountains had forced me to figure out the labyrinth early. So yeah. that, I mean, that diagram on the, what, the second or third last page of Two Lost Mountains, it's got... It's got the tree of life, it's got the tree of death, it's got the tunnel, it's got the central area with the five bridges going to it. It's got, uh, it sets up everything in that labyrinth. Uh, So I sort of, once you set the map up and you can't change it, (laughs) you're committed. And the hardest thing was actually saying to myself, can I sustain a whole book set in an underground labyrinth? And that was the challenge and funnily enough, the the book I drew upon was Contest, my very first book. Okay. Which, okay. Which, is, which is a guy fighting aliens inside a single building in New York City. It's not dissimilar structurally to Contest.
0: What made you think that, Matt? What made you question about whether the one setting would be enough to sustain an entire novel?
1: I'd done it before. Mm. A- and I and knew fans had high expectations for this book. And mm. I dedicated this book to my readers and you you have to deliver. Mm. And I, and what I found really enjoyable about this process with this book is I've never finished a series before. With Scarecrow, with Scarecrow, I could he's like James Bond, he could go on forever. And a little insider tip for everybody here, which a couple of readers have spotted: Scarecrow doesn't age, whereas Jack West does. The Jack West books take place pretty much in the years that they come out. They they did up until 2016. Whereas when Jack West met Scarecrow in The Four Legendary Kingdoms, I had a little crossover. A couple of readers pointed out that Scarecrow was shot down in the Bosnian conflict in the early 90s, and he should be like, you know, 45. Scarecrow doesn't age. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And so he could go forever. Whereas Jack, I knew I was going to finish the series. And if I were a reader, as I am a viewer of TV shows and movies, have certain expectations that if you're gonna finish the series, you've got to explain everything, give your hero, you know, what he deserves and give all the characters what they deserve. So I was fueled. I was fueled to deliver something, you know, I'd never done before. And that's where you got to keep doing it.
0: And how do you so obviously you've got you got your own favorites, I dare say. I have my own favorites. I'm sure that every fan has their own various favorites. No two are the same. How then does that go about intact well I suppose it doesn't impact the writing all too much though matt is that any sort of consideration though in terms of like knowing that one character in particular has such a strong fan base and and others might not have as that much but still have very strong perhaps even more fanatical sort of fan base for one particular character does that even sort of factor in or not particularly
1: not really no mm-hmm. no it's, it's all got to be in service to the story mm-hmm. and the good thing with the with the jack west series is that i'm pretty sure everybody wanted to know about jack with mm. this one. That's why it was a pretty easy decision to make. Uh, but I got to have some fun, you know, you get to have fun with a, you, you've got to bring in some new fun characters, like like a, a bondsman who gets a scratch and Smiley. it's called Smiley, you know. I love
0: Smiley.
1: You've got to add to a team in some ways just to keep it fresh. Mm. And again, I learned that once again, Lethal Weapon. Every Lethal Weapon movie always brought in a new member of the team, you know. You got to learn from the classics. They're they they're classics for a reason.
0: What do you think it is, Matt, that you bring in characters like? As soon as, as, soon as you start talking about introduction to new characters, I knew you were going to mention Smiley, and I do. I love him, and it's it's yeah. it's hilarious, and it's almost mind bending to think of this character. That particularly, obviously, especially because they're not uh, vocal. They don't. They can't speak, and. Yeah. Yet you form such a, they're so endearing. What is it that you think makes a character endearing, particularly if you've only just recently introduced them and there hasn't been enough time for a fan base to be attracted by seeing them in several installments in a series?
1: Because the rules have been set up. Mm. The rules have been set up that the bronzeman will obey you whatever you say. And so if if Lily says to the bronzeman, to Smiley, you are to protect him or you are to protect her uh, or whoever has the ring says that suddenly Smiley just becomes the ultimate bodyguard and just stepping in front of danger to mm. protect our heroes. Um, I mean, as a tangent to explain it, you know, a lot of people waited very eagerly for the Star Wars prequels, the, uh, you know, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, and found them lacking. Mm. And I'm convinced that the prequels, they're expertly made films. There's nothing wrong with them professionally. There are no friends in those prequels. They are cold and soulless. And if you even bring in an unspeaking automaton into Jack West's world and he steps in front of flying liquid fire or you know spinning helicopter rotor blades, you go, I like him. Uh, he he's become a friend to the team, and and the team respects that. That I'm convinced that's why the prequels are stone cold objects. And I think everybody, when we watch films, we love to see friends.
0: That's so true. It's so true in terms of that because I, I I do agree with you, and that's you mentioned it within just the smiley character himself as well. Yeah. And I mean the the action that continues throughout. And I've got to say. In terms of some of the action and the the what you've kind of mentioned there with uh, these jewels that you've set up in previous installments and then and finishing up, mm. here, I imagine that there must have been quite a, a tremendous amount of Well, there's singularly, there's going to be a lot of tremendous amount of pressure anyway for conclusion of a series that you know so many people have adored for so long but these these showdowns that did happen at several points throughout, yes and they were good they were good <laughs> Matt right they were good and like I just i I, I think it's because. Yeah, you you yourself, I mean, you've cited Lethal Weapon, you've got like this absolute oh. memorabilia of like this absolute awesome sort of almost museum there of all these these films and television shows and books that you yeah. love. And I think it's just from what I'm outside of looking is that you get the fan service because you yourself are an unabashed fanboy yourself. Yeah. Understand. Is that what it is, do you think? Or you know,
1: I I'm a student of story. I love a good story. Mm. And I do think Die Hard, as an example, I've got the, the building right behind me. I live in Los Angeles. If, I, if I'm if i driving home and I can take Olympic Boulevard, I take Olympic Boulevard because that's the road Bruce drove down on the way. And you look up at the Die Hard building the whole way down it. With Die Hard, you don't just shoot Hans Gruber and have him drop to the floor. You drop him out of the 30th floor window. He It's the die screaming rule that, he's done so many bad things, he has to face his comeuppance. Mm. And I had a rogues gallery of, vi- of villains who I had been writing about for four books. They'd been, some of them had been there since Four Kingdoms. Mm. And they deserved grim and gruesome, horrible, screaming deaths. And it, it might sound simple, but I think comeuppance is extraordinarily important that these villains get what they the heroes get what they deserve and hero and villains get what they deserve. And Dion's a good example that Dion had threatened Lily with a horrible existence. And so I I wrote the book in a certain way that they would confront each other and Jack could not intervene. It had to be Lily who faced off against Dion. And, and you know, he had to pretty much die screaming, which spoiler alert <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and, and hopefully re- readers are like, yeah, I want to see this guy get what he deserves. And and that's why going back to what I said before, Two Lost Mountains was always a difficult one because I couldn't do it in that book. That book mm-hmm. had to be a little open-ended to, to to move into this one.
0: Well, I think we talked about it at the time and it was like, I likened it a little bit to like The Return of the Jedi. It was kind of the one where the baddies seemingly won quite a lot throughout it. Yeah, well, I
1: think you could, you could conceivably called two lost mountains and one impossible labyrinth the one story mm. as well you know stru- structurally the one impossible labyrinth is let's be honest the whole book is a climax it's not really a book which has a beginning a rising and an ending it's just all boom so it, and that it was all set up in two lost mountains so in that regard i'm actually really happy this one came out one year after it and readers didn't have to wait too because it is one that should be read quite closely behind it
0: absolutely agree with that and it's interesting that you did mention that there's that one big kind of like climax and it's, it's totally true but i mean like mm. we've sort of touched on what you have mentioned there as well and the parts the moments that you've liked in the avengers series and stuff like that is these quiet mm. sort of uh sort of moments and there's just those themselves through with the flashbacks and everything throughout and it was like i said matt like i always i always felt like they were used sparingly it wasn't like you kind of mm. uh, undated the reader with them. And again it seems like you're always ever conscious of this sort of very finite amount of pages. but it all yeah. kind of just came together in this way and I just find it so amazing particularly because I assume that when you've got such a veritable smorgasbord of characters that you've built over the years with all these different installments that yeah. they must be dancing in your brain. they must be vying for control. they must be trying to encroach on in one another's territory. How do you go then about wrangling and ensuring that they all yeah. get the proper actual time that they're supposed to?
1: It's, it's very difficult um, uh, to address the flashbacks. The flashbacks have to be, they can't overstay their welcome. We mm. always know when they go too long. So I might say to myself, this flashback can't be longer than two pages. Mm. And I have to do it in two pages. Um, but it's funny, you go, it's funny, I think I was just watching last night an episode of the, the Foundation TV show. And I realized that there's a moment in Impossible Labyrinth where Pooh Bear is talking to uh, Tracy Smith and they're talking about the Foundation series. They're talking Mm. about books. I mean, in my book, I've got characters talking about the Foundation series, uh, which obviously has now become a, a TV show. And again, you can't go too long. So you say to yourself, what is the character element I'm trying to convey with this scene? I didn't just write about the Foundation series because I like the Foundation book series, which I do. What I was showing very quickly is that Pooh is a guy who listens mm. to a woman, and this is a woman who rarely has men listen to her. That was the point of it. And again, once you've made your point, move on. Move on. Uh, yeah, there is, it's a funny thing. I, I do meet some people who write their first book, and sometimes I, I get sent first novels, and overwhelmingly they're overwritten people write too much because they think they've got to get to page 400 to get to page 400 you have to elaborate you don't write what you want to say once you've said it move on it's something you learn i mean i'm up to what 18 or 19 books now so i've had a lot of practice but yeah you know don't overstay your welcome the book is as long as it has to be and once you get to the end write the end and stop unless you're talking
0: (laughs) So then, I mean, right in the end and stop, very well said, very succinct. Yeah. Like but then, so how does, how does it work in terms of the planning then, Matt? Because you've got these gigantic set pieces in, yes. um, featured within the phone and all. I mean, like the thing that's always thrown me as well is that you've mentioned about, you know, the, this ramping up of stakes. So it's gone from saving the world to now saving the universe. But the, the action set pieces themselves have always continued in my mind to, to get larger, never, there's never, oh, yeah. oh, and there's one particular, I don't want to go, I don't know, I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> but I was just like, in my head, I just saw this is awesome. You know what I'm talking about. I, don't I know the right? one. I I'm know the one. I'm yeah. like, how then, so how is that with So you've got the mythology, you've got, you know, you've traced your source material there or your fascinating yeah. research that so you've no doubt done. But then at what point does the set pieces enter into it? And you determine, you know, be it the maze that's going to appear or there's just these gigantic yeah. action set pieces. When does that sort of factor into it?
1: No, it comes in the planning. It mm-hmm. comes in the planning, and I was right from the get-go. I knew Impossible Labyrinth had to have some absolutely show-stopping, big scenes. It had mm-hmm. to start. It had to start big and crazy, and it starts with a fifty-page action scene. It, it just is bonkers to start with, but it did need. It needed some colossal elements to it that mm-hmm. that, that Blew out everything else previously in the series. And yes, we, we won't spoil it mm. for, for, the, for the readers, but there there is a scene in this one which is of a scale that I have not done before. And I mean, it's just the joy of it. It's the joy of a book, uh, as opposed to a movie where, you know, it takes a lot of money to do that. I, I'd planned that from the get go. That was always in this book. That was always going to be big. And Without spoiling it for the readers, that it, I forget it, it was in Tullus Mountains where we first heard of the the first fourth Red Horizon star. Mm. So it was already planned back when I wrote that book. So there was always and yeah, there was always this one had to have big. If you again, if if you think of the whole series: Seven Wonders, Six Stones, Five Warriors, Four, Three, Two, One. They all have to get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's that's the nature of a story. Your climax has to be the the high point of everything. And so the action had to be bigger. And if I can't think of it, hey, usually I just start big and tell myself, go bigger. I did that back with Scarecrow. I said, with Scarecrow, I'm going to destroy a building with him on the roof, and then everything has to get bigger from there. So you're automatically starting at a big spot. Just get bigger.
0: <laughs> Don't look down. <laughs> Getting bigger, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's easy to say, but then to actually do it and execute it is, is something else entirely, man. How do you, because, I mean, action by virtue of what it is, I guess, is innately chaotic, yeah? Like, there's mm. huge yeah. set pieces that it's, it can be inherently difficult to sort of navigate through. But mm. I've never, ever felt that for you, man. I've never felt that for your books, no I man. Like, I know you've been doing it for mm. a long time. But how then do you marry the information of what needs to be said mm. along with, continue to drive the action forward but it never being bogged down and trying to describe the true enormity of what you're talking about and obviously furthering along whichever character's sort of narrative is uh besieged by this action set piece they found themselves in
1: you know structurally without getting too far into the weeds you know you you've got to have characters people like Mm. that's the first step if people don't like them you got nothing it's boring because you don't care um they need a clear goal so in a certain labyrinth that so the supreme labyrinth has a bunch of separate tests in it and each one has a certain goal so you have got to be very clear to the reader what does the character need to do um i don't know if you've been watching squid game on yes. netflix
0: yes i was going to talk to you after the camera I, about that but yeah
1: I, no i love i love talking about squid game i just finished it i think Uh, Squid Game has a lot of what I would call Matthew Riley, elements in it, elements of competition, but it's got very clear goals.
0: Mm.
1: They take the first 20 minutes of the first episode to set up the lead character. Mm. Yes, he's a loser. Yes, he's been a horrible father, but he's also got a bit of joy to him. He's somebody we can cheer for. And then, oh my God, along comes the violence. And you want this guy to survive. But it's very clear the goals that he has to do. And so I set up clear goals, characters you like. And ever since contest and iStation, the diagrams help a lot. Those, if a picture tells a thousand words, a thousand words is three pages of a book. It's about 300 words a page. You get a diagram that gets, the reader goes, okay, here's Jack. That's where he's got to get to. they're all the things in his way. Uh, You could also just say the essence of drama is when two people want the same thing. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And in, in this book, you know, Jack and Sphinx want the same thing or they all want to get to the throne. And as I like to do, there's one character who doesn't want that. He just wants to destroy the universe. And that's the, that's the scariest villain of all. The one who just wants to spoil. Uh, and you got to bring those in unpredictable
0: ones. Man, Rasto is like definitely probably my favourite. Um, has been. He's yeah, great because he's just he's, he's just he is just there. And you know I'm sure I could find a more delicate way to put this, but I just can't off the top of my head. He is there to fuck shit up. He is just there. He to is. Fuck shit up. Like he's literally there to just just completely destroy. And and what can you when you have someone that's not invested within their so much yeah. like personal safety, that, you know financial gain, they're literally just there to destroy existence as we know it. That's a very, very dangerous. And automatically, even without even describing them, just that mindset, it makes them a very dangerous sort of villain.
1: I mean, the, the, there are some there are some movies I've watched and I've gone, God, I wish I wrote that. The Joker in The Dark Knight is one of the greatest villains you know ever written. Hannibal Lecter, one of the greatest villains ever written. But the Joker, and I, I love reading story analyses about the Joker. Um, it's usually usually in a movie. You see this in a lot of um, science fiction movies. The villains want order; they want to bring totalitarian order, and the heroes are fighting for freedom and you know the the freedom to do what you want. And the Joker is the opposite. The Joker doesn't want order at all. He wants total chaos. He he enjoys chaos. And, and with Raster, with, with Raster, I mean, I had a guy who could he's a bit like the villainous version of mother in the scarecrow books. Mm. He doesn't obey the rules. And then in impossible labyrinth, I bring in things like these crimson orbs, which give off light, but they also do, you know, super powerful liquid fire. Mm. And so what does Rasta do? He ties it to somebody's back and makes them into a human bomb. And that's the kind of villain you just, he's unpredictable. And and again, you put that into what I was just saying. You've got Jack and Lily and these people you really like. They've got to get to here. But to get there, they've got to beat this guy who will do anything. And this is actually to go back to Squid Game because I'm rambling now. But to go back to Squid Game, I tell stories for a living. And so I can usually pick where a story is going. And there were moments in Squid Game where I was like, Where are they going to go here? I did pick some of the twists in the final episode. um, But as a general rule, I loved it because I was going, and where are they going to go? And hopefully somebody reads Impossible Labyrinth and goes, how is Jack going to beat Raster? You can't beat a guy who does all this stuff. And, you know, I have to think
0: of a way to do that. (laughs) It's so true, man. I'm so like the whole time because I just finished Squid Game like a week ago, and literally in my head, hand to God, in in my head, I was like, I can't wait to bring this up on Matt Riley because I know that he would just be all over that show. I can just tell that was your kind of show, man. One thing I've always (laughs) found interesting about you, Matt, speaking to you, and I speak to a lot of writers, is your unabashed joy about the act of writing and mm. and creating of stories and it's it's rarity it's rarity it's rarity and all, all the different genres i speak to fiction non-fiction there's a lot of people uh talking about how torturous it can be very few talk about their love of it and bringing these worlds to life and that's just always just everything every single word you speak is just imbued with the sheer love of storytelling and i wonder if that's what's kind of sustained mm. throughout and it's only sort of intensified when you've gotten as you've gained momentum and more and more books have come out and more legions of fans have joined you throughout all these crazy adventures. You take them on. Tell me about your love of writing, Matt, and creating stories like that, man, because it's refreshing.
1: You know, I've often been asked, actually, since I wrote two books, people ask, which is your favorite? And I've always said the one I'm working on now. Mm. And it's because I'm trying to do something new. If I wasn't doing something new with it, I'd be bored. And it would be torturous. And I have been asked, you know, even in the last week, you know, what do you do after this? You know, after you have a book where, you know, you're saving the universe, I'm halfway through another book. Mm. I, uh, I stopped it to go off and make the movie Interceptor. And what I've done with this one is I've come up with a new structure, a different kind of structure to a book which has a massive twist in it and the twist is in the structure. And so the joy comes from trying to build a better mousetrap. You know, I I get to tell stories for a living and if I can figure out some clever new way to show people a good time, that's that gives me great joy. And so yeah, how do you people say how do you top that? And the thing is, it's, it's not coming up with a new thing to save the universe. It's coming up with a new story, a mm-hmm. new story structure, which I would, if I read it and I'd go like Squid Game, I'd go, man, that was really great. Uh, and, and I think um, you, you'll see it. I tested the waters, and you can often see this in my books, with The Secret Runners of New York. Mm. The Secret Runners of New York was me testing the waters of time travel and the twists and this next one will have elements of that it'll sound strange to have elements of the the time twistiness of secret runners but with a story that's more like the tournament oh, man. That, okay, with a, with a roger ascom style character so is it
0: is is, is is it a period thing i haven't looked at the spoilers in the back yet to see what you're yeah. talking about is it is it a period also kind of thing or
1: it is historical yes Wow. Yeah. So it's not set in the present. Yes.
0: Oh, man, because the tournament is definitely absolutely by far one of my favourite works of yours, man. Um, absolutely yeah. knocked my socks off. And, like, all these others just sort of stand alone for all that have been sort of in the same sort of universe. I mean, like The Great Zoo of China. Yeah. The Great Zoo of China. And you, the fact that what you're mentioning about yeah. taking out, trying different sort of genres or trying different things, like Secret Runners mm. of New York, all, all that's, yeah, to, to your merit that you do that sort of thing, Matt. And I really, really like that you do try that, man, because I do like novelist I myself, my sins attempt to do it all the time. Uh, And it's just, it's just something that I find. Yeah. It kind of prevents it from getting sort of uh, tedious or making it stale. It's you challenging yourself. The way I kind of look at it Mm. is I'm like, you get an idea and you go, man, that's a cool idea. I don't know if I can do it. I, I don't know if I can realize it. I love the sound of it, but it is so out there. I don't know if I can realize it. And I feel a kinship with you, Matt Riley, because I feel like that is you. You come up with this idea and you go, that is so out there. Like, how, can, how can I make this happen? Where's the research, historical research? There's bound to be something if you dig deep. And boom, next mm-hmm. thing you know, you're at the conclusion of the Jack Jack West Jr. series talking to me about it.
1: That, that, that's exactly it. And, mm-hmm. the, and the, the consequence of it is that you'd be amazed how often I do say that. I go, this would be an interesting story. Can I do it? And then the writing takes, you know, a year. And there are moments where you're going, how do I figure this out? People, the hardest thing I've faced in terms of like book reviews, it doesn't really happen now, but back in the day it did, where reviewers would say, oh, Matthew Riley just writes adventure stuff, you know, just easily digestible stuff. And the assumption was because it was easy to read, it was easy to write.
0: Mm.
1: If you can can write something complex, Secret Runners of New York is a good example. It's a very, very complex story where you have to keep track of everything. Hopefully, by the time it gets into readers' hands, it seems easy. I have conveyed the idea in a seamless, easy-to-read way. But that does not mean it was easy to write. It actually can mean it was really hard. It's really hard to simplify uh, a, a big, big idea. And so, yeah, that's, that's often the case. You go, how do I do this? And then when you do it, that's the satisfaction. Mm. That's the satisfaction of writing the end, you know, on that first draft. You write the end and then you go out for dinner and celebrate because you've done something. Yeah,
0: It's interesting that you mentioned about making it look easy because I think there was the, there's that quote, I won't, I won't remember who it is, but talking about writing as one, writing good writers make writing look easy, and two, writing. I think it's Thomas Mann. Actually, writing, uh, writing is writers find writing harder than other people, or paraphrasing, or mangling it there. But essentially, people that aren't writers or don't identify as writers find it a lot easier to be than, than people that are writers or identify as writers. And I think that's very, very true. What I might dovetail with, I'll cap off with Matt, because I think that, yeah. you know, they're about about hard things and sort of sort of stuff like that. I'm not sure if you've listened to many episodes of the podcast, but what I always like to find out about and your journey in particular is a very unique one. is what was the hardest be it a period or one particular occasion in your writing career that you faced where you could feel that you were someone on the crossroads there meeting the devil at dusk like it was you either decided to continue and you prevailed accordingly or you could have at that point said no I'm not going to attempt anymore and your example would be particularly interesting because I know that you've gone through such a unique sort of Journey to get to this point. I feel worried. Like you look. Do you, you look stumped? there's no stumped in question? Sorry, man. <laughs> no. I'm, it's, I'm, dying it's, I'm dying to know. I'm going to know.
1: Now it's trying to pick one. Uh, <laughs> there are many. Um, I sold a TV show called Literary Superstars to Darren Star, and we were this close to shooting when the Writers Guild went on strike and it killed the show. Uh, that 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 would have been massive mm. that was the producer of sex in the city doing his next show after sex in the city we had uh, and that was like being right at the top of the mountain mm. and then the next day you're at the bottom of the mountain and you go what have i done the last two years are now for nothing mm. and it wasn't for nothing it was all learning experience and you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, you get back into it. It's funny. The first thing that you, you first thing that popped into my head when you was asking me the question, was actually it was a, it was when Ice Station was coming out, and it might have been like an Easter weekend, and they sent me a draft cover for Ice Station, and it was black, and it was this awful cheesy black cover and it arrived on like the thursday and everybody went away on this long weekend and you know this is my second book but it's my first you know published book with a professional publishing house Macmillan. and i had to sit there over the weekend looking at this awful cover and thinking this is a terrible cover i mean who does a book set in antarctica and gives it a black jacket it's a white jacket it's always a white jacket it's white and blue i mean you know who who could not do that and i had to go that whole weekend going how am i going to say this what am i going to say how can i politely say this is the worst cover in the history of covers and so when you say was there a crossroads I reckon I got gray hairs that weekend thinking my career's already over because a cover does sell your book. Mm-hmm. That is one quote, which is wrong. Don't judge a book by its cover. People do it every day, especially new authors. And then luckily, you know, I, I held my nerve and on the Tuesday when people were back at work, I called Macmillan. And I said, listen, I'm not such a fan of the cover. And they said, oh yeah, well, we've got another one coming in and, it was this iconic cover that they mm. did, which was the white one with ice in gigantic letters, which was as good a cover as any first-time author has ever got. But that was a long, sleepless weekend. Yeah, I my, 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 my career was <laughs> over before it started.
0: Oh, Matt. Well, look, man, I'm so <laughs> glad that that, um, that that turned out for the better in terms of receiving the new cover, now iconic cover. And just for generally... Persevering through it and continuing to chase your imagination with all these crazy, crazy stories that combine both sides of your brain. There's your completely insane imagination and action set piece saturated sort of process. And then you fuse that with all these research and all these various kind of like world mythologies and how that all kind of just marries into this very uh, Matt Riley sort of uh, journeys that. I, along with many a reader, love uh, going on with you because they're just, uh, they're very Matt Riley-esque. And yeah, I look forward to a lot more after now that Jack, Jack Les Jr. has, um, has concluded. Uh, and there's a lot more to follow. And I know that no matter what you do, man, it's always going to be unique. So absolute pleasure talking to you on The Right Way Podcast, Matt. Thank you.
1: mate. thank you very much for having me.
0: So, everyone, there you have it. That was Matthew Riley talking to me from his place in Los Angeles, first international caller uh, call-in we've ever had to the program thus far, and I think it went swimmingly. If I dare say so myself, it was a resounding success in my eyeballs. But, uh, yeah, I suppose that goes hand-in-hand, part-and-parcel with how easy it is to talk to Matt Riley. He's probably gauged from the interview and the others that we alluded to that he's a very easy fellow to chat with, very passionate about. his writing. really love that, love that. I do find that refreshing that... Um, he uh he's just so unabashed about his his love and joy that he derives from writing these uh these crazy stories that people love. So many so many people love them, including myself. Uh so yeah, it was an absolute joy to talk to Matt Riley from Los Angeles, getting to see some of the memorabilia he has bedecked his study with. But in the interim, thank you also to you for listening to this particular episode. Be sure to get a copy of The One Impossible Labyrinth, along with all the remainder of the Jack West Jr. series, and Matt's other many books as well, from the good folks at Pan Pan Macmillan, Matt's publishing house, Pan Macmillan. So be sure to pick up all the copies uh, to your heart's content of all of Matt Riley's books, including this uh, this series, which has uh, attracted so many followers, including myself, the the conclusion to it, the one impossible labyrinth, see the end of uh, the Jack West Jr. saga, as it were. Again, huge thanks to Matt for speaking to me from America like that. really cool. And also, again, do stress enough, or can't stress enough, I should say, thank you so much to you for listening to this episode of the Right Way Podcast program, as well as any and all other episodes of the show that are ever-proliferating. Uh, go back and listen to all of them. See the evolution, the transformation, the polishing, the betterment, always to the betterment, I think. Uh, I would argue, of the podcast is the different episodes and how far we've come in many respects. And yeah, it's just been an absolute wild ride. Matt, uh, Matt being in the can, this particular interview marks the nearly, I'm not going to say penultimate, because there's still a couple more by my count. So I think I've got about three more episodes of the show to go with the slate that we currently have. But um, yeah, in the interim, get listening to all the others if you haven't already. And everyone have a lovely afternoon now in digital land, and take care. And congratulations to all fellow folks in Sydney for this Freedom Day arriving. Let us uh, let us enjoy it, enjoy it safe, safely I should say, and sensibly. Uh, and if you are anything like me, be sure to enjoy going back to the cinemas as quickly as possible. I myself, I'm going to be seeing the new Candyman movie this weekend. So big big old uh, excitement energy for that one. But in the interim, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Stay tuned for the final few that are coming out for the 2021. And as always keep posted on the social medias, on the Instagram profiles for any and all developments on the show and my own personal writing career as well. Thanking you.